everyone, and welcome to East Coast Office Hours, the Friday afternoon fanboy podcast with me, Merrick Kay, and Danielle Riendo. Hi. Hey. How's your Friday? It's Friday. <laughs> I'm. Yeah. I feel like I fell into like a time vortex. Yeah, especially because all these PS2 games are coming out. Huh? All these PS2 games are coming out. <laughs> I keep sleeping a lot, having weird dreams. Uh, it's dark all the time. We've entered the discipline era and um, Eternal Darkness, you know? Hey, <laughs> when are we getting a remake of Eternal Darkness? Yeah, right? That was a very interesting game that took place partially in Rhode Island. So Really? I didn't. I didn't know that. The like lady that wears slacks, the like blonde lady in slacks, she uh-huh. I think she goes to like a Newport mansion and that's where her horror tale starts. Oh. See, yeah. I never actually played it because Me either. I was a baby at the oh. time and I was afraid of uh of horror and um yeah. But looking back, the fact that it did things like do fake outs with save games and stuff. That's kind of cool. Seems like you know about that, right? Oh yeah. I I also didn't actually play it, but was fascinated by it and like read everything I could about it and read like plot summaries online and kind of all that shit. So I I feel like I played it even though I didn't. Yeah. Like it did that thing where it's like, "Oh, your save game got glitched. Sorry about that. Well, I guess you got to start over." That's really Oh, it's one of those things that probably only really works once, but that first time it's going to work really well. Like the Psychomantis stuff and uh, Metal Gear right, Solid. Yeah. And, and like, You're you know, the Bioshock Super thing. Mario Sunshine. <laughs> the secrets of a man's soul. Yeah. Reading, reading your save. Like, the first time something like that happens, it feels like it's breaking a boundary. That like, oh, it's actually reaching out into your other experience and it's not boxed in the way you think it is. And then the second and third time it loses like 400% of its luster each time. So it's, but hey, it's a good trick while it works. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, good things while they work. Um, yeah, it, I, I uh, my brain isn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say something about the weather and then I realized that's just the most New York thing to do um, because I feel like a lot of people have lost power and a lot of people have like lost their minds in this this vortex of, of miserable weather but then I realized talking about weather on a podcast isn't really great radio. It's not the best not radio. radio. Yeah. Um, I did just spend all of my coins in baseball to increase my passive income potion because right now I'm kind of like not, uh, I don't know. I just don't log in enough to, to actually wager on things. So like Mm -hmm. I just have increased my passive win coins to like 50. So whenever, um, the jazz hands win a game, I get a lot of, uh, of coins yeah. which is nice 
Yeah, I mean, and you did you did find the one game uh, to talk about where weather is relevant. So thank you. That's for, true for doing that for us. Thank That's you. True. It's a lot of we birds have... usually. Or yeah, uh, it's eclipse. birds now. I cannot yeah. believe that the Canada Moist Talkers have overtaken my beloved jazz hands. They heard me talking <sighs> shit. They heard me say that I renounced my Canadian citizenship, and now they are at the top of the chaotic evil league. Which honestly, the chaotic evil league. No clear standouts this time around. Um, you know, the Moist Talkers yeah. are at the top of the board, but they're only 50-42, whereas Hades Tigers are 65-27. Mm-hmm. They sure are. 65-27. Truly wild. Truly wild. Uh, <laughs> it's very, it's very, very funny to me how things have played out in there uh, and how, like, randomly I picked the best team in all of baseball, but also we keep sucking in the playoffs and I, I keep doing the thing where I say we for my team even though it's not even a real team and I have like nothing a to actually thing. do with it it's a sports oh yeah we, we won yeah we won we, we won we're you. winning <laughs> and I'm just like I don't I don't play baseball I mean I play baseball in that anybody can play baseball I guess I vote for good things for my team but still you know like I also like got on that passive income potion thing like on day one I've been maxed mm. out for a little while now. It maxes out at 60, I think, right now. Oh, wow. Okay. And, like, if you're on a good team and you have the passive income potion, you don't ever have to do anything. You Damn. just buy votes. Like, you just Damn. buy votes. I still bet, like, several times a day I log in and do do my bets and everything. But, like, yeah, I it's, it's really good to be on a good team and to have that passive income potion. That's also how I play games in general. Like, I love having things working for me in the background. It's part of why I uh-huh. like uh, immersive sims so much. Like making some other aspect of the game do the work for me makes me happy. <laughs> Getting to the point where you don't actually have to play the game anymore. You get to play the long game that way. That's like know? what clickers are about. Just like immersive, like uh, yeah. you start off having to click a bunch and then you get a machine to click for you. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of cool, huh? I mean, it, it entirely disrupts the point of a lot of what we. It think does of give gaming, you a sense of like but. control and I, you know, the appeal of making a number go up and then finding more efficient ways to make the number go up. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. Gives you that little hit of juice in your brain, that like little bit of grape juice. Just, yeah, just know. squeeze out a little bit of those good chemicals. <laughs> I uh, I had a very sports week, Merritt. Um, sports week. Which I don't, I genuinely, like, I know I'm such a Jacques, and, like, that's how I present to the world, but... Kind of a Jacques figure, like a Jacques Cousteau. A Jacques Riendo, you know, if you, yeah. if you will. Um, oh, I will. I, <laughs> I will. Like, I didn't really follow any team sports, though. Not, like, really, really. Like, you know, I always, like, would watch a game and enjoy it, but I started to subscribe to the WNBA, and I'm watching, like, every game, and, like, actually getting a feel for it, and... Um, doing that same thing where I'm like, well, my team is sucking, but the other teams are so interesting to watch. And it's like, I have nothing to do with the team's success. Like, there is nothing I can do in the universe. I am never going to grow a foot and, like, have spent the last 20 years playing basketball and be a mm. WNBA player. So, therefore, although I did find out there was a 5'2 player once, and that made me what? feel really good. Yeah, apparently there was a, a player who was 5'2". She's from Harlem. Uh, she's, she's retired, but she played for several seasons and like, she was really good and she now has like clinics for like working with kids, like on, on making them feel confident and working with basketball skills. Really cool. So These cool. are the things I, I 
get excited about. Like, the shortest player in pro basketball. <laughs> like, those are the things I get excited about. So, And I think there are a couple of teams who have women who are, like, 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, so I, like, put myself in their shoes, and I watch them as they are playing. And I'm like, yeah, you go, short person, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> That's like weirdly how I guess I identify with watching sports is I always put myself in the shoes of the person who like, I don't know, I the body type is the most like mine or something like that, where I'm just like, okay, if I somehow did this at my size, what would I look like out there? Uh, so, yeah, I don't think that's how most people watch sports. So <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm working with right now. I do that in MMA too. Like I always identify with like, oh, the smaller person out there if there's, like, a size disparity or something like that. I'm always, like, putting myself in the uh, in the gloves, I suppose, of uh, of those MMA fighters. But, yeah. I think that's normal. It's, yeah, it's got to be on some level, right? I mean, it has to be, like, an audience identification thing from, that's like, screenwriting. People, yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's a big reason why people watch sports. Right? Well, people love underdogs so much. Like, in our culture, underdog stories are, like, universally beloved, right? I think the problem is that people sometimes think of their team or country or group or whatever as underdogs when they are not. Yeah. I think some people uh, in my uh, hometown vicinity... Uh, who worship the Red Sox may be pretty guilty of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that well, like thing? people will act like, oh, oh, the poor Red Sox, and it's like they've done very, very well at multiple <laughs> times in the last twenty years. It's not like they are, you know, in the slump that they were before that. But people act like it. They act like, oh, my team, my poor team, and it's really like, bro. Well, if you also these are very rich athletes, like. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, if you act like you are in, you know, a position of disempowerment, then it is easier to get people on board, I think. And that's something you see in American politics a lot and global politics of like superpowers being like, we're being victimized by terrorists or like, yeah. Um, you know, or conservatives being like, uh, the liberal media. They're not fair. They're not playing fair. They're playing dirty. There's yeah, no it's such dirty. thing. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's rough. It's bad. Uh, sports sports are can be good, at least. The, one thing that has been really striking for me uh, watching WNBA, WNBA games is how hard they're going for Black Lives Matter. It's actually really, really wonderful. Uh, to mm. see like in the at least in the opening weekend of games I'm still sort of watching the the games from last week every single woman has Brianna Taylor's name on her jersey uh, and they're like leaving the court uh, during the national anthem like as a team like the entire team is leaving the court and then they come back on and they do 26 seconds of silence for Brianna Taylor and every single woman who was interviewed in the first uh, couple of games like said you know, they were asked questions about basketball, but they were also were like, we're playing for her. We're playing for her family. They were like in contact with her family and like got her like the mother's blessing to like put the names on the jerseys. Coaching staff are wearing Black Trans Lives Matter T-shirts. And it's just not something I'm used to seeing in pro sports. Like I'm just I'm used to seeing like maybe 
you know, maybe you see a kneel, maybe you see like some mm-hmm. respect being paid, but this is like they're going all in uh, on like having good messaging and activism, and they are like interviewing men, like the the WNB, uh, sorry, NBA players who are talking about like they're wearing the WNBA jerseys and talking about how the women are leading on this, and it's like. They used to treat women's sports like a joke. Like mm-hmm. in in the larger sports world, like it really was like treated with not the same respect. And just watching it now and seeing how much they are both being politically fairly radical, especially for mainstream American sports, and how much like the dude players who are like superstars are constantly like watching games and being interviewed on games and saying how awesome the women are and how much they're being leaders on this is like fucking cool to see and genuinely weird for me because a lot of times you watch sports and you feel bad about it like you feel bad about supporting i feel bad about supporting like the ufc for example that there's a lot of bad politics there and bad policies there or you know i feel like dirty watching nfl games because of how awful the nfl is politically but like this is like oh this is what sports can look like with like at least some decent politics and leadership (laughs) like that's fucking cool to see and very abnormal for me. So that's been rad. That's cool. <sighs> yeah. How's, how's your week been? Uh, you know what? It's been, yeah, I don't know. It's been fine. Yeah. Um, busy. Just, uh, God, I don't even know what time it is or what day <laughs> it's just like I keep waking up for like around the same time like late morning and it's dark and it's dark pretty much all day and I'm not complaining because I like weather like this but sure um yeah just working out a bunch of different stuff uh some fun things one of I think the most fun things that I worked on this week was a piece about what's being called the giga leak the Nintendo oh, Giga yeah. Leak, yes. which is um, basically people got a hold of a ton of old resources from Nintendo games. And it's cool because companies like Nintendo, I feel like, just sit on this stuff, which is a crime. Like, it's yeah. a criminal crime that, <laughs> that, like, game developers and publishers are... I mean, I guess they have no financial incentive really to do this, but like right. they don't release these old unused things for historians. And so like all of the work of games historians has been like uh, sort of fighting, grappling with the kind of like disposable nature of this medium. Yeah. And sometimes things like this happen where people just like find a ton of stuff and... um Heidi Kemp's wrote this piece just going through a lot of the Super Nintendo stuff, which was really cool. Um, yeah. Because some of the things like this, I remember seeing like in magazines at the time. Yeah. And uh, like, you know, in progress screenshots and stuff. But then this is like, it was huge. There's like all these unused uh, assets, unused games. Um, and there's like that thing where Yoshi... <laughs> Uh, just bombs people's houses in Yoshi's Island. It's Yoshi transforms into a helicopter. Baby Mario gives him bombs and he drops bombs on <laughs> bandits houses. And it's like, Oh, I can kind of see why maybe this didn't make it into the game. It's um, a war crime. They do war crimes. They violate the Geneva convention. The Twitter <laughs> account even said 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, like there's just so much cool stuff lost to history and now regained. And um, like the pi- like the pilot wings prototype, which was called Dragonfly, yeah, uh, was a totally different game. And there's like you know, the title screen and like screenshots and all this stuff from it that was like for a long time, we just had no information on it. And now people have all this stuff and like the dedication that people put into like combing through this code and like reconstructing it into what it looks like is really astounding to me. And, um, I don't know. I just find these like amateur historical projects, whether they're about games or, or some other form of media, this kind of like media archaeology stuff to be really fascinating. Um, yeah. And it was a really fun piece. And so I enjoyed working on that a lot. Yeah, I, I actually love this piece so much. I, I made a tiny video out of a, a couple of yeah. pieces of it. There's just so many like... Sometimes when a piece comes together and there's just a lot of art, like really beautiful art, well, beautiful and also in in, in the case of that Star Fox picture. And also Star Fox faces, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess it's beautiful in a way. Uh, you know, it's uh, a kind very of like a beautiful agony. <laughs> you you, you might remember say it's that like, website? Oh, God, beautiful agony. No, I don't remember this website. Was this like a. Oh, uh, fuck. It's, you can probably guess. Oh boy! Oh boy! Well, Jordo is uh, <laughs> Jordan. Our producer is is. You know what? I'm just gonna Google it. I'm just gonna Google it. It was. I don't know if it still exists, but it was. It's actually kind of interesting. Oh yeah, of course. I was gonna say it's it's a hundred percent the little death. Like that's what's going on. Here. Yeah, yeah. It's of just, course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's just girls getting off, and it's kind of interesting in that I don't know that that was like a thing at that time when it became a thing of like, this is a kind of different mode of, you know, whatever visual eroticism film theory. Um, (laughs) But they do have Star Fox making a face. So um, also there was maybe a human lady in Star Fox. Yes. That's weird. Uh, There's a human woman. There's like a hippo. There's like a robot. There are all these great character designs that didn't make it into. A Even bear? Star, like Star Fox Two, there were a bunch of weird characters who I don't think really ever appeared again in any other game. Yeah. But there are sprites in progress for characters that like did, were cut from that too. So a lot of weird lost stuff. That super donkey thing that was oh like, oh my god, kind yes. of like a weird Rayman, but Donkey Kong, but also Yoshi's Island. It sort of looks like Spelunky. Just in looking at it, just the color. It looks themselves. like a Spelunky. Yeah. And of course, this is from like, what, 1992 or three, maybe? Yeah, like, just early to try 90s. to place it. Yeah, like really, really early, like before Yoshi's Island. And it was called, what, like Super Mario Brothers 5 or something? Oh, it was like Yoshi's a really Island was originally name. called, yeah, Super Mario <laughs> Brothers 5. Oh, gotcha. Um, yeah. And then that, well, of course, this is just a prototype. And then it probably branched off to that. But yeah. And now it's, yeah, I think. Because it's officially called Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island, Yes. Yeah, I think so. At least that's how it was advertised in the U.S. Then Super Mario World, the first level, like the first area is Yoshi's Island. It is. That's correct. And you start at Yoshi's house, right? Like In Super Mario World, yeah. And he's like, hi, I'm Yoshi. 
uh, someone kidnapped me and turned me into an egg. I don't know how I'm writing this, but <laughs> no, I think he just says like, I'm not home right now. And I always thought that Yoshi's house had like some kind of weird secret in it. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it does. There maybe is some kind of like bug or hack you can do of like exiting it in a certain way. Um, actually, maybe in the Japanese version, there was something yeah. you could do with it. And then I think I tried to do it in my version. I got to look this up now. I know, right? Like this, I remember having the same thought about it because it just, it looks different from a lot of other things in the game. And anytime something in a Nintendo game looks like a little different, it means, oh, something's up with it. Like you can do something. Um, also, when you're a kid and you're bored and you only have one video game a year or whatever, uh -huh. you you play that game in ways that perhaps you weren't intended to play that game. So, <laughs> Yeah. You know what? I don't know if there was anything. It might just have been Yoshi's house. Also, it's not really a house. It's like... It's like a hut? Some maybe? trees with a <laughs> fireplace <laughs> and a mailbox and a speaker. Well, a speaker makes a house. Um, so, yeah. So... It's really good. I, uh, I want to point out as well the Super Mario Kart early sprites. Um, oh my god, yeah. When Which there's uh, no Mario? Mock Rider. Yeah. <laughs> there's no Mario. It's Yeah, it's just this little bro in like, it looks like a hovercraft, first of all. It doesn't look like a car. Uh, it's just like a little helmet. And then in the next screen, in the, in the screen I'm looking at, there were more with the helmet guy. And then there is a Mario from like the butt view, like the back view. However, in the same line that there is a Mario and a Donkey Kong and uh, like a, I guess a Toad and a Bowser... Mm -hmm. I I just the toad's head is really bald, like really bald, like extra bald. Uh, not toad, sorry, uh, Koopa. Like the Koopa's head is like, uh -huh. I don't know. It there's there's like a shine on it. There's like a literal shiny bald spot on it, and I I don't know. I feel like that could be really distracting if you're driving like that character's like back bald spot. Anyway, they must have fixed it because I don't remember it being actually distracting. <laughs> There's a lot of cool stuff here. I feel like we There's a lot of very cool stuff. Talk about Mario World weird stuff every like few episodes. Like we talked about uh, <laughs> the eating the dolphins oh, in the right. Japanese version of the game. Um, it's such a weird game. It's just such a genuinely weird game that I feel like it has a lot of... I think it's a weird game and also lot. because it was like my first video game. Um, oh, okay. There was a lot of just like... It was like, oh, wow, this is a weird little world inside of this box. And, yeah. um, and I'm a child, so everything... I'm deeply impressionable. And it's <laughs> very fascinating and, and interesting, but also very frightening. <laughs> yeah, frankly. Like, uh yeah, the part with like the lost or like the sunken ship, the sunken airship and stuff. Yeah, scary. that always like kind of kind of scared me. All the ghost houses and stuff in that game. It's really very trippy too. And like, if you beat Star Road and then everybody becomes like a weird mustachio. Oh pumpkin. my god! Yeah, when you beat the special <laughs> world, I yeah. could never do that as a kid because I couldn't beat tubular. Which is oh, just tubular a is hard. fucking pain in the ass. Um, yeah. I wonder if I could do it now. I mean, the trick to do it obviously is to just get a blue Yoshi, but yeah, uh, even then it's like not trivial. But um, 
Yeah, I definitely lent uh, or loaned my copy of the game to a somewhat like a family friend, like across the street from us when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and they were able to beat the special world. And when we got the game back, I was like, what has happened? (laughs) Why are they all weird, weird Mario faces? Why is, why are the colors different? What's happening? Um, but then, um, one of, uh, like my mom would babysit kids, um, when I was really young after school or after kindergarten. And, um, one of the kids that she babysat deleted the file (gasps) and, uh, I was so mad. Oh my God. So that child did a crime. I know. I know. I would have I would have been inconsolable to me video games at the time were like my work like my masterpiece like I remember mm-hmm. if I could beat like a difficult boss and something I would take like the family's like film camera like this wasn't like obviously like we didn't have cell phones and like easy cameras and digital cameras in like 1990 yeah. so like I distinctly recall beating a boss and getting to a place in the the Little Mermaid game for the NES. Uh, oh yeah, there was like bubbles a walrus boss. Stuff. Yeah, it it was actually a pretty great game, and I genuinely want to play it again because I think about it. It was like a really creative little platformer. Um, but I remember like I beat the walrus boss, and myself and my sister were so excited that we got the like film camera that you needed to spend money to process the film. It took like six shots of the TV, like showing like Uh we beat the boss and like took pictures. I don't think we got in trouble, but I do think my parents thought that was pretty weird and then hid the camera uh, (laughs) after that because it was like, this is not what the camera's for. (laughs) Like um, Nintendo Power always had those contests of like, oh, get to this level in the game or, like, get this score or whatever yeah. and then, like, take a picture and send it to us. And, like, they had a whole guide for, like, how to do that because oh my God. it was really hard. Like, I'm make, I'm extremely old as I'm saying this. I, my bones are turning to dust. But, like, <laughs> imagine trying to capture a, a non-flat screen CRT yeah. with a film camera where you can't see this shot when you take it you have to take it and get it developed and come back it was like you had to like put it like on a stand turn the flash off like make sure there was good lighting and everything just to capture this like thing so you could send a photo to nintendo power to win like a i don't know free nintendo power probably like a yeah like a nintendo power strategy guide or something like god yeah it's 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 pretty funny i can't imagine actually like being uh, a games journalist back then must have been a pain in the ass too because you had to capture photos from like you had to capture images from games right. and like images from trade shows were always the fucking worst because it was oh, like yeah. literally just a picture of a screen with a game on it with like glare and stuff and like there's still some games now where the only photos of these early beta builds that we have the only images of them are like that because um, we don't have access to the original files and all of the pictures that people took at the time were just with fucking film, like 35 millimeter cameras. Yeah. And a lot of times there'd be like some dude's hands 
in the picture. And that yeah. was like just the best picture. And they couldn't really crop it properly without like cutting off something. And it would useful. be in a magazine. It would be in a magazine. In a someone, print magazine. In a print yeah. magazine that you'd buy and be like, wow, I can't wait to play Mega Man X. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. We were, I mean, that's the thing. That's part though of why magazines were so, at least to me, I was obsessed with video game magazines. Like I was almost as excited about the magazine as like getting a new game, like genuinely because you saw so much. Yeah, go ahead. It's your window into like a whole bunch of different things. Like I never, I don't think I ever had a subscription to any, but I would always go and read Nintendo Power at the library and then occasionally I would like buy individual issues of like GamePro or EGM um, or like, later on like the dreamcast magazine yes and uh yeah they were it was just like oh wow i'm never gonna play like 90 percent of these games but like <laughs> and also that was the only way that you had of like knowing about things besides like schoolyard chatter right um especially yeah, pre-internet were, it was all yes it was all you had it was exactly. really all right you had. yeah it was like yeah. all you had um and uh, so it was like these people were totally curating your experience of games, which was a really strange thing. And now it's like there's just so many sources for everything that uh, yeah. you have it's, a lot it's more also, choice. Yeah, you have so much more choice now. And also, like, they were really comprehensive with, like, review coverage. Like, EGM, I, yeah. I subscribed to EGM for, like, 14 or 15 years i feel like like for a lot of my like younger years and teen years uh and even into well into adulthood like i subscribed until it ended in 2009 i think um i know there's something else now that's egm but i guess the original run or whatever um like they would review like the austin powers game for the game boy (laughs) you know what i mean like things that like probably wouldn't get a review now at most publications at most like bigger publications they would do the 80 90 hour rpgs and also you know the review crew would also do like the powerpuff girls games and the berenstein bears like licensed snowboarding game and like like almost everything that kind of came out like in at retail which is wild to think about (laughs) honestly like truly wild to think about uh, it's wild. Yeah. yeah, I remember the first time that a game website actually didn't have a review for what I thought was like a semi-major release. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's really weird. Why don't they review everything? And um, <laughs> this was pretty late. This was like in the 2000s. Sure. It's like, why, yeah. why, why don't they review Fantasy Star Zero for the Nintendo DS? And um, before that, because before that, it just seemed like there was like there were enough reviewers to go around to cover pretty much everything. Although at the same time, probably I wasn't aware of the really weird small stuff that wasn't getting covered. But, um, but I feel like also there were just fewer, fewer things, uh, to be covered at the time. Oh yeah. So like when something wasn't, it was like, Oh, this is weird. Like indie game as a concept, barely existed i mean it 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 didn't exist in the way that we we know it now like there were always demo scenes there were always shareware games like especially on you know pc um 
and on some of the European uh, consoles, but like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really like it is now. Um, it's not like there was a storefront that it was actually easy to access. You had to actually know where to look for some of that stuff. And now it's right. Like, you have to fucking subscribe to like Amiga <laughs> monthly and get a, right. <laughs> a disc with games or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't really until I think I, I'm sort of just repeating received history here. So I might be wrong, but I feel like it's the mid two thousands is when the concept of, of like a capital I indie game really becomes solidified. Uh, yeah, with Xbox Live Arcade. With Xbox Live Arcade, right? yeah. I think that's when a lot of this stuff really pops off. So you get games like Spelunky and Braid and Super Meat Boy Geometry and these Wars like and Geometry yeah, Wars. Yeah. These games that like become pretty big successes for what they are at the time, which is like a pretty strong contrast to like the very graphically intense. FPS games yeah. at the time. Yeah. I guess I should probably just say commercial indie, right? Is more, that's a more useful term here. Yeah. I tend to think of it as like a capital I, like as it yeah, means yeah. something specific kind of. Right. Um, and I think that term is less and less useful every day now, just because yeah, I agree. the distinctions between like indie studios and, and AAA, I think are continuing to blur. Uh, we need a new term. It's time kind of. <laughs> Yeah, I it's mean, like it's it's almost just like less I don't know, it's weird because you have you still have these big budget titles, but I feel like they're becoming less and less viable to produce. And then at the same time, a lot of studios that like could be considered independent like are associating much more closely with like Sony or Microsoft or or they're entirely Epic owned now or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if they are owned by them, then by definition, they're not independent, but, <laughs> um, it's weird. All this, this language stuff is weird. And, um, the landscape is very different than it was, you know, 20 or even 10 or even five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so fine with that. I don't know. There are a lot of things about the landscape five years ago where I was already working in this full time that were not awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll continue to be not awesome, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there's just always, I don't know. I, I've gotten to the point where I really love games and I really love what I get to do. Um, but I'm very glad to not have to be, how do I say this? I'm glad that I don't have to know every single piece of news in the industry at the mm. moment. And well, I don't think that's to. even possible. I mean, yeah. Uh, it always point. felt like something you had to try to do if you were a journalist a few years ago who did anything other than just one type of coverage, basically. Yeah. Um, and now it feels like people have at least understood that it's almost impossible to be comprehensive, so do the thing that you're more interested in. It feels more viable. Totally. Well, at least in some sense. Also, that's a product of where we work and the decisions that we make strategically so that we can cover things we're more interested in anyway <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's part of it as well um was there any other pieces or rather were there any other pieces that you worked on this week that were very exciting i mean they're all exciting you know <laughs> i wouldn't publish them if they weren't exciting that's a good point um, as well <laughs> uh yeah i mean the speed runs of uh, I think this when uh, Mark Hill, the author, pitched this to me, uh, he framed it as speedruns of crap games. 
Oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> or I think the Japanese term is like kusoje. Uh, Jordo would know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Jordo is looking into Soon it. Soon research. Thank you, um, producer Jordan. <laughs> you don't have to. I just thought you would know. But if not, that's fine. But uh, yeah, so like, you know, speed running, when we talk about it, we think about like, oh, the record in Mario 64 or in... Um, you know, Metroid or whatever. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who speedrun games that nobody has even like heard of. Yeah. And my initial, you know, if, if someone is like, well, why do you think people would speedrun a game like Shrek 2 for the Game Boy Advance? And to me, my immediate explanation would be, well, people want to be the best at something. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there are sites that keep track of records like this. And so to have something is, you know, or, or to compete in a, in a smaller pond, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, of course. you know, it, trying to speed run Breath of the Wild or something like that. There's millions of people trying yeah. to do that. And that community is probably extremely cutthroat. There's like, you know, people trying to find new ways to break it all the time. But uh, a game that like nobody cares about as much is much easier to rise to the top of the pack in. But that's not really the whole story because a lot of people doing this stuff, um, the, uh, Mark did a lot of interviews with people who are, who are speedrunning games like this. It's not always just about like, oh, I just want to have a record. Um, it's like, I want to just see how deep this rabbit hole goes, yeah. or I want to share my love of this admittedly pretty broken game with other people. Like, this is a game I grew up with and um, played to death because, you know, you only had the one game or whatever. And uh, now I found all these tricks that I can show people. Um, and, um, like, <laughs> there's a Barney game for the Sega Genesis. And yeah. It was apparently a solved game for a while because all you really have to do is like hold left or hold right. <laughs> but then someone discovered that like the coding means that Barney like doesn't run at a fixed rate. Like it's oh kind God. it's semi-random, but there's a way to like make it go faster. And so just like digging into the game just for the sake of it and finding out how these things work and like how to do them differently, like to me, that is the stuff about speedrunning that I really appreciate. And I think it's easy for some people to look at speedrunning and kind of sneer at it and be like, oh, this is just about like, what, just optimizing and just like, just obsessing over one game until you can do it really flawlessly. But like, it's not just that. It's like about learning what makes games tick and like what yeah. makes them work and like exploiting things like that to like, you know, make Barney move faster or to like spawn an object that shouldn't be there by doing a series of complex things in the game that yeah. like break it. And that to me is like people, like people really fucking love Mario 64. And yeah. I think there are nostalgia reasons for that, but I think there are also just like design reasons for it. Like it's a really well made game. It's like still one of best made 3d platformers ever yes. i think um yeah. and there are still people finding ways to break it and just like digging deeper into it and finding you know ways to complete levels by uh with you know a half button press or <laughs> yeah all these different ways and um so that piece really gets that across of like 
people playing games that have basically been forgotten and um, finding these interesting things about them and sharing them with other people. And that to me is just like, it's just really cool. And I think it speaks to the fact that speedrunning isn't just about competition um, and it isn't just this race to optimize. It's about sharing strategies and like learning things that you didn't expect. And um, similar to actually this piece that I published, I forget who the author on this one was, but a couple months ago about people who add achievements to old games, like oh, they yeah. create achievement sets. And I hate achievements. Like I think they're a bad invention for the most part. I yeah. think they, uh, gamifying games is just one of the dumbest things that I've, that the society has ever done. <laughs> um, but the idea of adding them to old games is really interesting because then you bring attention to these titles that nobody ever would have played or looked at again. And um, that was also Mark Hill, apparently. So Mark yeah. Hill just constantly, um, thank you, Jordo, constantly bringing out uh, these these bangers on these kinds of communities. Because yeah, with the, the achievements thing, again, it's like a site where it tracks your achievements for these all these different games and you know players create their own achievement sets and so like there are achievements for atari uh 2600 boxing <laughs> and it's like that to me is really fascinating yeah. and and really cool so uh i love this piece and if you haven't read it you should go check it out and check out the achievement piece too yeah I I also really really enjoyed this piece. I also really enjoy speedrunning. I maybe spend the most time on staff out of anyone watching speedruns. I like I have them on in the background uh, most of the time while I'm working. For the reasons you noted, like just how much it tells you about a game's construction, especially when you start seeing like certain seams or certain areas where like the duct the game was kind of duct taped together. I don't think of that in any way as a flaw or a bad thing from the programming. It's just an incredible look at like, hey, this certain aspect was broken. We patched over it a little bit, and the act of speedrunning, uh, you know, sort of examines that and shows that and it shows so many things about a game's structure and how the mechanics were developed, frankly, or or like how weird problems were solved in a game's code. Like, I just find it so, so, so fucking cool uh, to see that. And I also really love that this piece starts off with a, a bit about Harvester, which is genuinely, oh my God. <laughs> genuinely one of the most like, like purposely offensive games ever made. Yeah. Basically, yeah. like, we actually played it during the Waypoint 72-hour live yeah, stream. And I had I to turn that. it off at one point because it was just like, well, we might actually be losing people here because of how fucking awful this game is. But it's also, like, a fascinating fucking landmark as well. Um, and, like, I, I just love the um, the person who speedruns it is, like, talking about how it's a furious <laughs> test of will and patience. <laughs> and it crashes at random, sometimes on world record pace. Like, the... The things this person has gone through to play this truly offensive, shitty game is like, I I can't not find that fascinating. Like the psychology of that is is amazing to like think about. Basically, just absolutely wild. Harvester is the fucking weirdest game, and like, oh, yeah, they intentionally just tried to make the most violent, like Garbo title they could as like a yeah. small team to try to make it stand out. And, yep. uh, 
Yeah. Huh, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. It's yeah. a lot. It's it's a whole lot. I feel like yeah, uh, content warning. If you ever go near Harvester, just just know that. Like just know that part right there. Put a little CW in your head before you go anywhere near that game. <laughs> I remember playing it at the seventy two and like. There's there's one point fairly early on where the most edgelord fucking edgelordiest dude in the universe shows up on screen and he's got like a magic hat and he looks like a like fucked up magician and he's like come to my morgue and uh, Pat Bear uh, delight de- delight of the universe Pat Bear was like I bet that guy worked on this game like I bet I bet that's just him <laughs> and like he was correct like that dude was a developer on the game which I just feel like tells you everything you need to know about the mindset that people were in when they made Harvester. So, yeah, that's a lot. That's quite a lot. Um, for myself, one of the, my favorite things I worked on this week was actually the little video for the, um, uh, the like, all the cool sprites from the SNES uh, piece mm-hmm. there from the, the Giga Leak. I did include, of course, the... Uh, uh, Luigi 64, which of course is not an SNES thing, but it was just such a cool little artifact mm. to see the model of of little Luigi and Mario 64, a game I also have enormous nostalgia for. Uh, so it was just fun. I, I'm trying to do those now that uh, wonderful Jordan, of course, is producing more podcasts. So I'm trying to see like, oh, when we have a fairly visual story, like when does it make sense to mm-hmm. just put little bits of it together and, and that kind of thing, which is really fun. And of course, I also... Shout out to you love to see it this week where we watch Showgirls. Um, God, what a good movie! You can hear all our thoughts. (laughs) You can hear all our thoughts, but just know that this week began with us like waking up on Monday morning and watching Showgirls. (laughs) Ah, that was good. That was a good. That was a good time. I enjoyed that very much. Um, is there anything else you wanted to discuss about this week before we uh, close office hours for business? I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. It was a good, it was a good one. We had a lot to talk about this week. We had a lot. To, we had a lot to say. Uh, do you want me to close things off, or would you like to do the honors? Um, yeah, please do. Okay, no problem. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening. With that, we're about ready to close up shop here and close office hours for business. Please do rate and review our podcast if you have a moment, and tell your friends. You know, if there's somebody in your life who thinks uh, you think might kind of jive with our sense of humor or our sensibilities in terms of criticism, please tell them about us. You know, that actually really helps us. We're a tiny, organic little podcast network, and that kind of growth really does help. So uh, please feel free to do that. Uh, And uh, yeah, thank you for doing so as well. Uh, You can listen to all of our stuff at fanbyte.com slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at fanbyte media, Instagram at fanbyte. TikTok on Fanbyte, and of course on fanbyte.com. You can watch all of our very good streams at twitch.tv slash fanbyte. And thank you especially to Jordan Mallory for producing and uh, being such a great producer who gives us images and uh, fact checks things and uh, does all sorts of stuff to make us sound good. So we appreciate that a lot, Jordan. Uh, Mary, where can people find you online? Uh, I am at Mary Kay on Twitter. Awesome. And I'm Danielle R.I. And uh, with that, Office hours are closed for business.